Welcome to another episode of The Examined Athlete. My name is Clay Reichenbach. Our conversation is with two sisters today, sisters named Crystal and Christina Tegby. These two sisters are from Pflugerville, Texas, a suburb of Austin, Texas, where all three of us grew up. I've known these girls for almost 30 years now, which sounds a bit crazy to say out loud, but we grew up together. And these two are now out in the world doing some really special things, which you're going to hear about in this conversation. Crystal and Christina are Nigerian-American. They grew up in a multicultural environment that has heavily influenced how they see the world and the pursuits they have chosen. And to that end, Christina, the younger of the two sisters, has founded a company called 54 Thrones. 54 Thrones is a beauty brand that pays homage to the 54 diverse nations across the continent of Africa, including Nigeria, the country of their origin. Every product offered by 54 Thrones is sourced directly from artisans throughout the continent of Africa. And they're making some noise, quite a bit of noise, actually. 54 Thrones has been named one of Oprah's favorite things. They have been offered an investment on Shark Tank. They have been endorsed by celebrities like Hailey Bieber and Aisha Curry. And their products have been embraced nationwide by retailers like Sephora and Nordstrom's, among many others. And Crystal, the older of the two sisters is 54 Thrones' chief of staff and is one of my closest friends to this date. She also happens to be the girl I took to my senior prom, which we get into in this conversation and talk about how we may or may not have seen that experience differently. I wanted to have these powerful women come on to celebrate 54 Thrones, the brand they've created together, and to encourage each of my listeners to go out and buy their product, you can go to www.54thrones.com. That's www.54thrones.com. Check out their stuff. But my larger goal was to recreate many of the unique conversations, the consequential conversations that the three of us had had over the years, or at least Crystal and I had. So beyond building a great company, we get into the negative perceptions of Africa, how they perceived Africa growing up. We talked about what embracing culture means to them. We talked about cultural appropriation. What's the difference between embracing 54 thrones in Nigerian culture and appropriating Nigerian culture? We talked about representation and why it's so important. We talked about the differences between our experiences growing up. And we talked about the responsibility that comes with notoriety and success. I so enjoyed this conversation, and I hope every one of you listeners enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Crystal, Christina, thank you so much for being a part of this. But more than that, thank you for your friendship. Thank you for sharing conversations with me like this over the years. Ladies and gentlemen, Christina and Crystal Tegby of 54 Thrones. Tegby sisters, you ready? We're ready. ready. Let's do it. All right. Very good. Well, we're most definitely, Christina, going to celebrate 54 Thrones today. But like we always try to do, my goal is to use 54 Thrones as a bridge to larger conversations that extend beyond building a great company. But the real reason I wanted to have you two on 
is because of the relationship I share with you ladies. I mean, I have a lot of love for your family. I obviously have a lot of love for Crystal, and I know that the true is same for you. And one of the things I was thinking about when I was preparing was the Sephora launch party. So everyone go to Sephora, buy 54 Thrones, but you guys threw this beautiful party, this really beautiful party. And a group of us ended up outside at that party. And there was this candid photo taken. And the photographer had no clue what we were talking about. But the discussion that was taking place was covering lack of acceptance, was covering failures. We were talking about finding love. We were talking about raising young black men. I mean, it was this amazing conversation. And that's what I love about the environment that we grew up in. I think it's incredibly unique that diverse groups of people are discussing those kind of things in a situation where everyone else is really drinking and dancing and partying. We're those kids in the corner talking that way. And that's really the reason I wanted to have you two on here today in addition to sharing more about 54 Thrones. So thank you for being here today. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us, yeah. So, Christina, we're going to start real easy for you, just a, a softball here. But I think it's interesting. I think you knock the name 54 Thrones out of the park. I think it's absolutely beautiful. So what I'd love to hear is the origin story. But more than that, share some of the names that maybe hit the cutting room floor. How did you come up with the name? What was the evolution before you landed on this idea of 54 Thrones? I was trying to think of some of the old names, but I think what's equally important is that this was not my first business idea. The other day I was looking at my um, domain, like my GoDaddy, and I saw all of the ideas that I had. Like I have like 50 or so like www dots. Of, and they're each like ideas of businesses that came before 54 Thrones that I thought I w- could do. And I was like, wow. And sometimes people will be like, remember when you were going to do this? And I don't even remember it because it was just so many. I had rapid fire ideas for years before I had the courage to be like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to quit my job and travel and figure this out. Although I can't really think of some of the names, I remember when I thought of the name 54 Thrones and I told someone close to me and they were like, uh-uh, that's not it. Like, that's not what? Work. Yeah, I remember that. And it I was like, me. I was always supportive. Oh, of the first time I heard it, I was like, oh my God, did you I knock told me out of the someone park? that and they were like, they were like, no. And at that moment I said, and this is when I was thinking of what to do. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to keep it to myself until I'm ready to put it out there in full form. Like I don't need any outside distractions because I was so just like confident that it makes sense. If And I was like, if I like it, I think other people will like this. And I remember that moment. And that was like a moment that made me be like, you know what? Until I'm ready, like keep it to myself. Because a lot of times outsiders can distract you and, and discourage you. And make you feel like an imposter when it's sometimes it's best to kind of listen to that voice that you already have in your mind that's telling you, like, try it. Well, I have two things to say. Number one, it's incredibly powerful. That's the word that strikes to me. It's just a powerful name, which maybe I I came to it pretty early because you guys are friends. But maybe you had some of the company built at that point. But I think it's a powerful name. Number two, I just released an episode with a University of Pennsylvania psychologist named Danny Southwick. He's on Angela Duckworth's team who wrote Grit. He talked about finding a purpose or a passion and that same road that you were on where it's important to try things. You have to go out, put yourself out there. You're going to have to have a lot of failures, a lot of things that don't work 
to find what you're passionate about. And I think that's a great point and a great way, way to start. But I want to move on. I want to move on to culture because I think a key pillar, maybe the key pillar of 54 Thrones, the brand is culture, which is an enormously consequential topic, a wide ranging term that affects all of us. So we're going to linger here for some time. But here's where I want to start. Either one of you ladies can start here. You're both Nigerian American. Your father immigrated here when he was a young adult where he met your mother. And so what I want to know is try to remove your thoughts from today and go back to when you were 10, 15 years old. What did Nigeria or Africa symbolize for you as a child? I think uh, we were talking about this a little earlier. As a child, Africa was, and I mean it is, but it was always like just so far away. For a long time, the only Africans we knew were my dad and his best friends who are uncles. And they are just like bits and pieces of that culture that we experienced, whether it was like a wedding or a funeral or just, just all of them coming over to the house. And I remember them being just so much fun and loud and boisterous. It's just full of energy. So there were moments that I really remember being immersed in the culture but it wasn't every day. My dad would make a certain breakfast every morning. And that was kind of like, okay, this is actually, you know, this is what they do back home. It was a, a kola kata, as what it was called. And to this day, my brother still, that's still his favorite breakfast. But so those things like that were always like, oh, okay, this isn't quote unquote, the normal Pflugerville breakfast that people were having every morning. But yeah, it was more just moments and like certain experiences that really solidify that, okay, this is something extra special that we get to experience. What did Africa symbolize to you as a child? When I think back and when I was at age, and I think like in elementary school, middle school, you all just, you want to fit in. And to us, it was obvious that there were some things that were different about us, like our names. My middle name is Olufumike. And I remember having those moments of like the first day of school and knowing like the teacher was going to mispronounce it, you know, and it was like you wanted to fit in, you know, at that age. And so it's like our mother is American, our father's Nigerian. And so we kind of had this we had this dichotomy of like you're Nigerian and you're American and you want to just fit in. And all of the other like Nigerian kids wanted to just fit in, too. But there were moments where it was like I knew someone else was Nigerian and they knew I was, too. And we had like moments where we could relate to each other, especially when it came to like our parents or different traditions or things like that. But I didn't grow up as a child proudly Nigerian. You know, I wanted to be like my friends. I, You know, my father would come and he had an accent and like I just wanted to fit. in. I didn't want to stand out when I was, you know, in middle school, elementary school. We weren't really we weren't made fun of like blatantly. But like, I remember just like you would hear little things like maybe your name was different, you know, or our parents would come to the game and he obviously had an accent. He obviously wasn't from America. But again, we weren't like to the point where we were like made fun of. But I do remember like seeing other kids my age that were made fun of, that were bullied because they were different. And I think that was one of the reasons why my aunt who and this is how 54 Thrones got started. But she realized, and I was a kid, we were kids, but she would send us shea butter and different like Nigerian, like beauty, beauty rituals. 
and ingredients and things like that to care for our skin because she knew that we were growing up like in Texas and we weren't going to have that connection. She wanted you to know where you're from. She yeah, wanted us to know where we were grab from. On, something tangible. Yeah. yeah. And I didn't realize that as a kid, we would get these little packages and we would get letters. They used to write us letters from Nigeria, handwritten, letters, handwritten yeah. letters. And we would get them in this very thin kind of sheet yeah, of paper. Thin paper. <laughs> and I didn't realize it then, but it was like, that was her way of trying to give us something to be proud of, like, and to know this is from Nigeria. You have it in your hands all the way in Texas. And I didn't get that correlation until like 20 years later when I sat down and thought about why was she going out of her way to send us shea butter from Nigeria. Like why we can go to the store and get stuff for our skin. Right. I think today it's been like a a new trend for the past like 10 years where it's cool to be different. It's cool to have culture. It's cool to be African, cool to be Nigerian. Like we're, you know, so it's like, now it's like, it's cool. Everybody wants to like be a part of something and be able to touch their culture. But as a kid, it was not cool. We're going to get to when you embraced your culture, but Crystal, I want you to share your experience because I've actually had a social psychologist on who studies fitting in and there is a powerful evolutionary need for humans to fit in, to not stand out. Number one, for thousands of years, that's how we survived. But I know you and I, Crystal, have discussed it and you were adamant that you wanted to be seen as 100% American. You didn't want anybody to know your middle name. You didn't want to be known as the African girl Elaborate on your experience there and what you felt. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to just being different. Like the fact that my male name is Oluwamayowa. So when you go into school the first day, like Christina said, and teachers are saying your full name, just like having hearing them stumble over the vowels, the teacher in your name, the kids snickering, I wanted to shrink in my seat as, you know, you're a third, fourth, fifth grade. You don't want to have that. And then you know, kids are cruel, sadly, but like little things you would hear, you know, were quite confident. So I was never felt like I didn't, you know, run home crying. So I made fun of my name, but you knew it was there. You knew that you were going to dread that first day of school every single year from kindergarten till you're, you know, you're a senior in high school because of, of who we are. So, so in order to survive, you had to, I had to fit in, I had to, I couldn't, be as proud as I am now being Nigerian because different wasn't cool. Different wasn't what people wanted to be known for. I I think I told you this story, but up until I was a senior, like no one knew my middle name or if they knew what they couldn't pronounce it. It was always Crystal O. Tegby. And then some of our mutual friends, they cornered my dad one day. I remember that. <laughs> at an assembly. And of course, my dad told them my name. And then they, in the way that they, they made me aware that they knew was so funny. So my name means God brings joy. So we're in this class. And all of a sudden, my two friends are like, yeah, you know, God brings joy. And I'm like, no, yeah, <laughs> like, it's like going along with the conversation. And then he gets dead quiet. And I was like, wait a minute. They know my middle name. And you know what's funny about it? We just laughed and moved on. They they didn't make fun of me. They didn't like tease me about it. They asked how to pronounce it and I told them. And then from that moment on, I was like, this is actually really cool. It's beautiful. It's 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 cool to be different. And And at that moment, I embraced my middle name. Well, I want to linger something you shared with me because it opened my eyes and I want my listeners to hear about this. So the first time you told me that story, Crystal... I assumed you didn't want to be othered by the white community we grew up in. And we grew up in a very diverse community, but I assumed, and you very quickly said, oh, no, 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 Clay. It was the black community 
that I was worried about. I didn't want to be othered in the black community. And I shared that emotion with another guest, a Nigerian-American Olympian named Fumi Jamo. And she completely agreed. And I don't really have a question there other than to highlight the complexity in that feeling. I mean, that even something like just feeling othered is not as simple as we make it, which is just fascinating to me. Let's talk about embracing the beauty and complexity of being African or being Nigerian, which I know even to say being African is reductive. There's so many, there's 54 thrones (laughs) in Africa. But walk me through, Christina, what it looked like to embrace your culture. You can even share what you think it means to embrace your culture. What did that look like for you? Oh, I think when I got deeper into high school, I was becoming more proud of being different. But especially in college and then after college, it was I was like set, like I was happy to be myself. But I think that, go back to the comment you just had, I can see why someone who is of African origin, you know, directly could be concerned about like what black people would say. It's really like a construct of society and how we view Africa as a whole. And I think that Black Americans have been conditioned to feel ashamed because when when you think of Africa, when one thinks of Africa, they think of poverty and disease. And, and so no one wants to be close to that, right? You don't want to be close to poverty and disease. And, and then so if someone's like, I'm from Africa, I'm African, it's like you're shunned, right? Because you represent what people make fun of. The African booty scratcher was like a common you know, like insult. Tinsel. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like, and now you coming out saying I'm African. It's like, you're now they're associating you with that. And so black people, and it's sad because specifically black Americans are the, we're like the only culture, the only like group of people who don't have connections to their actual origin. Cause that's been broken through slavery. And so through slavery, we were you know, it was the, the lighter skinned slaves that were closer to white that got better treatment. So the further away you were from being African, the better off your life could be or your treatment could be as an enslaved person. All of that conditioning, you know what I mean, has made black people in the past. It's changing now, but that's what made black people not want to associate with African. If you if I, I remember being in high school and being like, yeah, my, my family comes to Nigeria. And I was proud that I knew where my family came from because so many black Americans can't trace that because of slavery. I was proud that my name was from my family and most black people's names aren't. They have their slave master's names. And so if you were out and you're saying you're from here to them, it could be like, well, you're close to like Africa, like, like Africa. Africa. Yeah. Like, ugh. I think, the, I think the tendency is to be reductive. And that term yeah. I, I now use all the time. That term came from a discussion with Crystal and I. We were talking about this topic and how easy it is to be simplistic and to lack nuance and lack complexity right. in that not only are cultures not one thing, not only are countries not one thing, people are not one thing. And you're right. It's so easy to be reductive of Africa down to poverty, corruption, whatever you you think it is. But the reality is, yeah, in some ways it's that thing.
but it's also a million other things. And most of those things are extremely beautiful. And I think you said things are changing. One of the reasons they are changing is because people like yourself in 54 Thrones and people like Crystal who sit down with diverse groups and elaborate these points in beautiful, complex ways. Yeah, it it is. It is changing because of those because of those reasons as a kid in the 90s, early 2000s being different. And I'm not just talking about Africans in the diaspora. Same for Asians and South. Well, Asians like and, I mentioned, I mean, yeah. it's it's scientifically proven. We all want to fit in. We, we, fit we in. evolved to fit in. Yeah. We don't want to be different. And it's it's unique to want to be different. That's changing somewhat. And I certainly wanted to be different. I mean, I grew my hair out long because everyone's getting the ball fade in Austin, <laughs> Texas, you know. But I think that was rare. I mean, 90% of the kids in our high school had the exact same haircut and yeah. wearing the exact same things. Whereas, like, I can remember my mom traveled internationally late in her career. And she would bring me soccer jerseys, you know, David Beckham and Manchester United jerseys and Real Madrid jerseys. And I would wear them specifically because I knew kids were going to go, soccer, what? What are you doing? I just wanted to be different. But that didn't come around until late in life. And I think that's something we we find late in life. Crystal, what does it mean for you to embrace culture? It's kind of like being able to just exhale. Like, yes, I am African and I am American and I'm Southern. I'm from Texas and I can be all those things at once. And I don't have to put on these different hats around other people. Like, this is what you're going to get all of it all together at the same time. So it's definitely freeing. And I just can't stress the sense of pride that I have that I am Nigerian American. And I know I've got people in Nigeria praying for me, loving on me, sending me WhatsApp messages every single day. Like that is something just unique to our culture. And I regret wasting so much time as a youngster, like shunning it or trying to avoid it. Because it is just so beautiful. And that's every young person's journey. I hope that when I'm blessed to have kids that they don't have to wait so long to embrace their Nigerian heritage. And when, when you were uttering that sentence, what I thought may come out of your mu- mouth is like to be proud that you're crystal. When I think of you, it's not about being proud that you're Nigerian. There's millions of Nigerians. You're proud to be crystal and you're proud to be Christina. And that's exactly what I want to communicate to my girls, like, be proud to be Quinn, be proud to be Gray, which I, I see in you girls, and they certainly hear about you girls a lot, because I want them to model after proud women like you. Well, let's move on from embracing your own culture to embracing another's culture, because I think this is an interesting topic. For 54 Thrones to ultimately be successful, people from all walks of life are going to have to embrace Nigerian culture, African culture, are going to have to celebrate their culture. So I want to ask you about what is oftentimes a contentious topic, cultural appropriation. I want to know, Christina, where do you see the separation between embracing a culture other than your own and appropriating a culture other than your own? It's a very like nuanced topic. It's an important topic, and I think that the more we have conversations about it, It'll be more on top of mind because there's been so many examples from celebrities to influencers, just to regular people who get their hair braided. And then they're like, oh, these are Baudet braids. And it's like, no, those are Fulani braids from Africa. Right. So I think the real like where this really stems from is that there's a certain set of people in the world 
who can afford to be ignorant. They don't have to learn other cultures or, or, or anything. They don't have to. They can comfortably move through the world without having to learn the origin of XYZ. And there's other marginalized people who that's their inherent culture and they're shunned for that. If I wear my hair in dreads and I go apply for a job, I might not get the job because I have my hair in dreads. But someone can go to the Bahamas and get braids and it's fun and it's a costume and they can just kind of go about their life and move through society and it's fine. But for me, right, like that is my default. And so I think, again, there's certain certain people, white people can afford to be ignorant of these cultural traditions or attires or, you know, trends. They can. They don't have to learn. They can easily go through life without having to learn this. But we can't. We have to learn how to maneuver. We have to be able in the past. It's kind of changing now, but it's really not as much. But we have to speak a certain way if we want to be seen a certain way in society versus they don't. And so when it comes to cultural appropriation, I think I don't know the answer. I don't know how a subset of people who aren't a part of the marginalized can appreciate, you know, a hairstyle or a fashion trend in a way where we don't feel offended until the whole societal construct has been changed. So I don't really know the answer. I I think that what do they do, right? Do they get their hair braided and then get on Instagram and be like, these braids are African. Just want to let everybody know. Well, you you mentioned earlier about having the conversation or, or talking about it. And I love you girls. But even when I put this in the outline, it gave me some trepidation. But what I realized is, you know, one way to never know the answer, to not talk about it, to not talk about it with people who have different perspectives and different backgrounds. And that's what this is about. Crystal, share your thoughts. I I spent some time on it and I kind of went back and forth, but maybe let me share mine and then I'll let you share yours. So my first thought is it has something to do with disrespect. It has something to do with intent. But then I, I pulled the definition and the definition of appropriation is taking something for one's own use without the owner's permission, which that's much broader than disrespect. And that's where it gets really complex because then I'm going, well, how does someone own a culture? Who speaks for Nigerian culture? It seems to me it's highly personal. And what I mean by that is I could see a time in the past, maybe you wouldn't do this now because it's the way we speak about it, but I could see a time in the past where Crystal would have gifted me a Nigerian necklace or a Nigerian shirt, and I would have worn that. And someone else, maybe even a white person, which makes it even all the more confusing, would have told me that I'm appropriating Nigerian culture, yet that gift was from one of my closest friends who loves me and I love her, which brings me back to my initial thought. It seems like intent does matter. Disrespect has to matter. Or am I embracing it by wearing this gift that my friend gave me? Or am I mocking it? Or am I trying to profit on it at someone else's expense? And it's a wildly nuanced, to use your word, and complex topic. But I think this is where figuring it out begins. But I still think there has to be some sort of disrespect. I don't think we want to be in a world where someone is celebrating a gift. We actually were gifted a El Salvadorian dress for our girls from a good friend. I don't think having our young girls wear that would be appropriating, but someone may see it that way. What do you think, Crystal? Yeah, I mean, someone is always going to have an opinion, no matter what you do or how careful you are. But I think this comes down to like 
who you're around and the people that you care and love, I think your girls would love wearing the dress. It was a, a thoughtful gift. Africans are very giving. If an African man gave you a necklace, they would want you to wear it. But there's no clear definition of what is and what isn't appropriation, I think. But I think what really rubs me the wrong way is when aspects of a culture are appropriated and then they're profited off of and the person at the top has no connection to the culture. For example, right now, there's an ice cream that's coming out at Walmart for Juneteenth. We didn't ask for an ice cream flavor to celebrate Juneteenth. It was very reductive. And there's a part on the ice cream cover that says Juneteenth approved. Who approved that? Who who speaks for a day that that Black Americans are proud of in that way? Another instance, I think Walmart is also selling napkins celebrating Juneteenth. And the phrase on the napkin says, it's the freedom for me. Really? They like also that, use like a trendy black kind of exactly. slang. That's the slang. And the, and the bigger problem is like, this is kind of what it boils down to, at least I think for black people is that black people control the culture and the trends we do we're we're in everyone is you determine what's cool let's we determine what's cool like that's just what it is but if i talk like this like hey what's up i'm gonna go to the store right if that's how i talk and i don't get certain opportunities but if you talk like that and you do it's a problem right if i wear my hair like this and i can't go into these places but when you do it you can or like how crystal said like a lot of brands are like Getting their, you know, I don't even know using how to our vernacular. It. I don't know what to say. Yeah, and, 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 and they're and that that's when it's a problem. I think that yes, intent matters, but I also just think like ignorance. Maybe you have good intent, like oh, I just I love this this outfit or this kimono or these dreads, but you haven't even taken the time to learn about what it, who it, who made it what it actually means to that culture. So you could have good intentions, but I feel like if you still are being ignorant and not trying to learn about what this actually means, that's a problem too. It's having good intent, but also leaning on, I didn't know I didn't my know. ignorance. Like yeah. you get a few passes at that, but if you're constantly being sold like, hey, maybe not do this or hey, this is making me uncomfortable. You can't continue to lean on your ignorance. That's actually a choice at that point. Well, that, that's what I think the conversation is, is so fascinating. I will say maybe a little space between Christy and I. I think we all code switch, I mean, in different environments. I certainly do. When I go, I'm not braiding my hair and going into an interview either. I think that would affect me. But the point you're making is that situation to navigate is completely different for you than it is for me. So I do think that we overlap. But even to take the Walmart example, it could be well intended. You could say, hey, there's no representation of Juneteenth on our shelves. We have to do it. So it seems to me what you're saying is it's how you do it. It's how you go about navigating that. Who who was part of this? Who helped to create this napkin? Who helped to create this T-shirt and get it on the shelf? So like I said, it could be well intended, but it is sitting down and having conversations like this and putting your foot in your mouth and You're saying, you know what, that came out wrong, but let's continue to work it out. Hey, to me, that's how we figure things out. And in my eyes, I don't see a whole lot of that. I see everybody going to their corners and being reductive and being simplistic as opposed to saying, no, we're going to sit down 
We're going to talk it out because we want to progress. And for me, progress means we're all working together. We're all moving together. I've said this a hundred times, but if you think progress means 30% of the country is coming with you, you're fooling yourself. Progress means we're all coming. People that don't look like you are coming. People that don't agree with you. Maybe even people that don't like you are coming. Like I said, it's a wildly complex topic. And I think it's one that's important. So even when I get these little butterflies in my stomach, I'm going, let's talk about it. Let's figure it out. If Crystal gives me a shirt, can I wear that shirt? And I guess I think, I mean, my inclination is to say yes. And if someone came up to me and said, hey, asshole, you're appropriating culture. I'm like, no, one of my best friends in the world gave me this who's from Nigeria. That would be my response. And I, you know, again, there's someone who's well-intended coming at me. But I, again, at the same time, I can probably argue the other side. I think that's a good response. And like, I'm Nigerian, right? I've gone to so many different African countries. And although I'm Nigerian, I'm not Egyptian, I'm not Moroccan, I'm not, you know what I mean? And so I'm still African, but I'm not that, I'm not, don't, I don't come exactly from where I've been traveling around the world. And so I had to kind of think about those things too, right? Like I'm going to North Africa, Morocco, I'm brown, you know, and a lot of them are more Arabic descended and I want to learn about argon oil, right? So it's like, I had to think about those things and what I came to do, you know, what I thought of was just that I had to figuratively go there on my knees, like very open-minded, humble, like open to learn and not so much like I'm Nigerian or I'm American. This is how I want things like being open, listening, not going in, assuming ownership, not going in and assuming ownership, like being there as like a vessel, like open eyes, ears, everything open to listen and to learn and to be humble and to be respectful and to ask like, like there are certain like beauty rituals that I've seen that I would never make a product out of because they're too sacred, right? So having that discernment, asking, like inquiring, like that's how I've kind of approached the brand. And, and it is kind of like a, a thing because I am African, but I'm not from every 54, you know, country. So it's like, I had to kind of like figure out how I could navigate that also. Absolutely. Let's move on to a very closely related topic, representation. I think that's kind of what we're getting at here. And that's a word I've heard associated with you, Christina, quite a bit as you've taken 54 thrones and had a lot of success. So let's start with you, Christina. What does representation mean to you and why do you think it's important? America, the world, everywhere. So there's so many different types of people, right? There's so many different cultures. And We've gotten to the point where I remember like being a kid and like going to the store and wondering why like, you know, there weren't any brown dolls or like why Band-Aids only came in one shade of peach and not my skin color. And although these things might seem nominal for a kid going a place and not seeing something that looks like yourself, it sends messages to you that you can't or you're not good enough. You know, if you go to a school, you've never seen a black teacher, you've never seen a black banker, you've never seen a black principal, you know, or or whatever it is, whatever you are, you've never seen that. That sends messages to you that it can't be done. That's why representation is important, even when it comes to beauty, which is really important because little girls and everyone at this point, you know, we see these messages of what's acceptable, what's beautiful, how you should look. You know, and I remember even the magazines growing up, 17 magazine, it would always give you like tips on 
how to do this, how to do that. But we didn't see ourselves. So it's like, does this apply to me? Do I belong? Are you good enough? Those are messages. So when it comes to beauty and representation, it's important that now we have brands to where everyone can find something for them and that they can look forward to and they can say they can feel affirmed and feel seen. So those messages are important and they're critical because they're critical for business because there was a point in time where brands wouldn't speak up. And I think today, if a brand doesn't speak up, it's suicide. You have, you, you can't play the middle anymore. You have to pick a side, right? Are you going to be, are you going to, you know, have an arrangement that everyone can find something for them or, or are you not? Right. So I think in 2020, you know, with George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, it came to a point where brands and everybody had to pick a side. Like, where are you going to stand in history? Are you going to have representation? Are you going to, be equitable. And some of those brands, you know, it was lip service, but some of them have really stood behind that. And I wanted to be a brand that people could see. And maybe they didn't know anything about African beauty, but they saw it and they wanted to learn more. You know, they were intrigued to learn more or they felt proud. Like, wow, I want to be associated with this. I want to support this because I, I agree with it. I feel connected to it. That's how I like approached representation. Um, as a brand and as a founder. It just matters so much. I'm grateful to have had people that look like me in positions of power and, and growing up in school from teachers to principals to coaches like that. That was huge. You know, as I got older, like Christina was saying, like going into a grocery store, a mall, and not seeing me on any of the advertisements it kind of made me feel bad. Like I'll never be able to to model. I was wanting to model back then. But then it also made me fired me up. Like maybe I could be the first. But why should I be the first? It's so powerful. It's inspiring me. It needs to happen. Like I love seeing people that look like me in places of power because it just it shows me that yes, it's possible. But when it's not there, I do get that little like, let me see what I could do. How can I disrupt this? Viola Davis said it beautifully. She said that it's a physical representation of your dreams. And I thought that was so well said because many times we all need another voice to give us permission to believe. We need someone to light that spark that says, hey, this could happen for me. And let me own this in front of everybody. This is a realization I came to late in life. And if I'm being honest, it was highlighted to me with my daughters. Because my girls want to see women in positions of power. That's not how they would phrase it, but it is. If we're listening to the radio, they don't want to hear a guy singing. If we're watching TV, they don't want to see a boy. They want to see powerful women. And again, I've sat down with psychologists that study this, how important it is to see people that you identify with succeeding, representing your dreams. Montesquieu says knowledge makes men gentle. And I think it's knowledge. It's seeking knowledge. You talked about going to other countries and being curious, prioritizing understanding. It's that. And it doesn't mean I have to understand everything or I have to agree with everything Christina says or everything Crystal says, but I better come into these conversations curious because six, seven years ago where I'm going, oh, wait a second. Yeah, my daughter hasn't seen a president of the United States. Oh, wait a second. Crystal hasn't seen a model that fits her. You know, that 
it takes some curiosity. It takes willing to sit down and have these conversations. But anyways, let me ask you this. Christina, are you constantly mindful of your role as a representative of African-American founders? Is that something you're constantly thinking about? I'm aware of it, but, you know, in the past like two years, press and, and different blogs and magazines and the world, it seems like, has has really done their job of like, you know, 101 black brands to follow, follow these black founders, black founder, black brand. And I understand the intent. I understand where it comes from. But at the end of the day, I want people to buy our products because they like our products. I was about to ask you, this is a dangerous question, but do you ever feel like it's pandering? I, sometimes I'm, I see someone posting on Twitter five times a day. And at some point I'm going, this is reaching the point of being patronizing and pandering. It like, can be. It can be. It might come from a place of guilt or like overcompensation. It can be. But I think I'll speak for myself and maybe I am speaking for other black founders, but put our products on the shelf with everyone else. I don't think buying body care should have to be this revolutionary act. I want you to walk into Nordstrom or Sephora, wherever, you know, our retailers and see the product and read it and buy it because you like it or you identify with it. I hope we can get to the point where it doesn't have to be this act of like, now I need to post on social media. I bought from a black brand. At some point, the product's got to stand for itself or yeah. else we're, not, we're doing everyone a disservice if we're just reducing the standards to get a black brand right. on the shelf. At some point, that, that doesn't do Christine any good to say, oh, we're, yeah, I, I agree with you there. So it's like, I, I appreciated it when it was happening, you know, in the mentions. But at this point, like I'm Christina, I made an incredible brand and here's why you'll like it. That's how I want to be looked at as an individual, as a founder, not so much as a black founder. I'm a founder. You want to be held to the highest of standards. Right. That's, that's what great people do. They hold themselves to unreasonably high standards. I love that. Well, I want to go back and take this down a personal road. I want to talk about Pflugerville, Texas, which is a suburb of Austin, Texas, where we all grew up. We grew up in a town that was culturally diverse. And I was naive to that fact growing up that most people in America don't grow up like that. Most people in America don't grow up spending the night with other races and dating other races and marrying other races and taking other races to prom. But I never really thought about it until I left Pflugerville, if I'm being completely honest. And so what I want to do is compare my experience in my perspective growing up in Pflugerville to your perspectives, because it's not lost on me that it may have been different. So I rarely thought about race below surface level. I just, I'm being honest, I certainly acknowledge cultural differences. I can remember going into Vietnamese friends' houses or Nigerian friends' houses and smelling different foods and things like that. It's not like that was lost on me. There were certainly jokes being made, whether, you know, this white boy can dance or the color of your, your skin's dark. I mean, that was happening. But I always felt completely comfortable in your home, in homes of all kinds of races. Race wasn't an ever-present thought is, I guess, a way for me to sum that up. And I think back, Crystal, to you and I going to prom together. I'm being completely honest here and frank. I never thought about it in a racial context. It was as simple as three things. Crystal was beautiful. She was kind. And she liked to dance. You, you had to dance well to go to prom with me. <laughs> Let's just be honest. But I knew my parents would be thrilled. I knew your parents would be thrilled. There were other mixed race couples going. So what I want to do is, is specifically on that context, and either one of you can start here, 
was your experience different than mine? Do you think that my ability to rarely think about race below surface level was a result of my race and my sex in, in Pflugerville? I agree. I don't think it, I mean, for even for our class, I don't remember it ever. Race was never like an issue. It was never really thought about. We were all just friends. You know, I was in the marching band. I had friends of all races. I played sports and we're all friends. So, yeah, we have definitely some of experiences. Do you think but... we grew up in a unique environment? And maybe each class was different. Do you think we were in a unique environment, Christina? Was your experience different than mine? I was aware of race. Like I was I was aware of race. And aware more. is a broad term. I was aware of it, but yeah. I think you understand what I'm saying. It wasn't an ever present thought. I think for me it was more of a thought. But we did grow up like Pflugerville, it wasn't the most diverse place, but you know, like I wasn't always the only like black person in my classes. Like there in my classes there would be other black people and Hispanic people, you know, so Looking back, it was more diverse. Than it probably- was overrepresentative of the American average. The American average, whether it's 12 or 13% black, we were probably well above that, I would imagine. Yeah. Maybe that helped. I think that there probably are like people who, you know, would be the only black person in their school or in their class. And that was not our experience. Like there was definitely, you know, we had like black history um, shows or like, you know, like. Like and there was the a step club. Yeah, like I was I had, in the step club. The step club. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that like I like how we grew up. I that like was called that. P Phi Seda. <laughs> <laughs> we did. Yes. We we did. Like there was some of everything at Pflugerville High School, and in Pflugerville, I felt comfortable growing up. I was aware that I was black. My group of friends were more black growing up in my whole like childhood. But I did have friends that were white and that were Hispanic and that were everything, and especially through sports. So I, I think I liked our childhood. Like, you know what I mean? I can't recall like anything that was like super like racist, you know, things that would would have happened to me like growing well, up. Well, and not even super racist. What I realized going to Rice University, and I bet you felt it too, Lane was that I came from a unique place. I went to Rice and realized, oh, wow, there's these people that have no experiences like I've experienced. I've never really spent any time in Hispanic or black culture. And I've said this on the podcast many times. I I leaned on it as a strength. I could bring perspective, I think, that others couldn't. I felt comfortable in situations that others didn't. And it just highlighted to me that we all have these filters that we run the world through circumstances through and mine's clouded by where I grew up and others are clouded by where they grew up. But let's move on to 54 Thrones a little bit. I want to ask some questions. Sorry, was that a little abrupt? (laughs) (laughs) So I've got a couple of questions. We are going to talk 54 Thrones a little bit. So what I want to ask you about, Christina, is not necessarily the idea, but the execution of the idea. Because it's one thing to have an idea. It's a whole other thing to execute that idea, especially as I started thinking about it. And it involves taking raw materials from Africa, manufacturing them, packaging them, dealing with governments, dealing with customs, figuring out a way to get them to the United States, and then all of a sudden make a profit off them. We're talking about a monumental mountain you had to climb. So what I really want to know is not necessarily the idea but when and how you realize that, okay, there's a path to make this happen. Because I, I think if it were me, if I'm speaking honestly, I would have been like, goodness gracious, there's no way. 
I think if anyone sits up here and is like, oh, I had it all figured out, that would be untrue. I had no clue how I was going to do this. And I think that was my biggest strength is that I didn't know what I was doing. And in that same vein, I didn't know what I was doing. So the possibilities were endless to me. And you didn't wait until you did know. You did it not knowing. You were like, I'm, I'm going to learn things these out. skills It sounds first. like you were comfortable in that space. I'm not as I'm not as comfortable in that space. You were. I, I've, I'm, a, I'm a person that has been very self-motivated like my whole life. And that's really because of my parents. And my parents, bless their hearts, they just encouraged me and my ideas like my whole life. And so I remember like as a kid, I would have like I, w- I used to write Oprah letters. I had like ideas for sh- for her show and my mom like write her a letter. And that's what I would do. And I, you know, I was like, this is what, what you do. <laughs> and I used to have ideas for like brands. Like I remember I wanted to make these new kind of granola bars. So I was like writing Nature's Valley. Like um, and my parents would encourage me, give me stamps and was like, write them a letter, Christina. Like, and I used to like make these books. Yeah. And my mom would like take them to her school, get them laminated and bring like, and I thought I was a published author. And there's one story that is so everybody like has these little stories when they were kids. But one thing happened to me that made me really feel like I could do anything. I had to be like six or seven. And I remember being in church and I would sit next to my dad or my siblings. And, you know, there's parts in church where you would clap, where everybody would clap. And I remember being a kid and I would start clapping. And I realized I was like, I'm like a little girl. Why are my claps louder than everybody's in the whole church? And I was like, dad, like I have the loudest claps. And at that moment, I was like, I must be like some type of superhuman. And so like little things like that in my childhood, I was programming myself that I could really do anything. Like I thought I was going to go to the Olympics. I, I Like everything was like, I'm, an, I'm excellent. Like I can do anything. And so when I got to the point in my 20s where I was going to quit my job because I was like, I need to start a business. Like I, I can't live like this. I like kind of whittled it down to like, I wasn't as risk averse at that time, but even today, I feel like I would do the same thing at this age. I just was self-convinced my whole life that if if someone else could do it, that means I could do it too. Like, why can they do it? And I can't. When I was got to the point where I was, okay, I'm going to get these raw materials from these different African countries. It's going to be great. I just was going and I was calling and emailing people and I didn't know what I was, what's happening people in villages. It sounds like you weren't really thinking, I mean, you had, you had a long-term goal, but you weren't focusing on this cathedral. You were just like, how do I lay this brick as perfectly as I can? And then after that one, I'm going to lay the next brick as perfectly as I can. And it wasn't even as perfectly as I can. It was just like, yeah, like put that brick on the ground and let's go. Like, cause I knew if I waited, I knew that things could not be perfect because I didn't have any money. A good friend of ours, Pat Sheck, who started Fit People, I had him speak to an entrepreneurial group that I'm a part of. And he said, progress over perfection is his motto. Progress Absolutely. over perfection. Because I knew when I started the brand in 2016, I knew how I wanted it to look. But I knew that my pockets were not deep enough. So I knew that couldn't happen. So I was like, just just get it going. Well, I think if you focus on how monumental the task is, you're never going to do it. Because that's what I'm doing. I'm sitting back here preparing for this going, Holy shit. Like, I think I would have just shut it down, which it probably you would have too if, if you knew what customs was going to the trouble they were going to give you. If you knew what supply chain. I never thought of that, honestly, because in my brain, I was like, well, what else are you going to do? 
Like if this, like Christine, like I, I was always like, this has to work. It's going to work. Cause what are you going to go do? That's how I always thought. So it was like, okay, they said this, make it happen. Oh, you don't know how you're going to ship it back. Okay. Pack an extra suitcase, put it in your suitcase. Like that's how my brain was just going, like do it like that. Put it on Facebook. Like I net, like, so I don't know. It's when I think back of how I was thinking, I'm like, what was I thinking? Like I would be in like the smallest of little villages, like me by myself, like learning about shea butter. Like, what are you doing? So it was like me not knowing what I was doing and not knowing how hard it could be and how, you know, it kept me going. Cause I was like, okay, Christina, like we're gonna make an African brand, book a flight, go to Africa, like go to Nigeria or something, get a hotel and start find where walking the around. Are. Right. Start walking <laughs> and that's around. what I was doing. I was like finding people and asking like, where do they make argon oil? And they're like, oh, I know someone come to, and I was going. <laughs> You're like figuring it out. That's amazing. Out. Girl, God, I wish some of you would rub off on me. God. <laughs> oh, cause I, and I always felt protected for some reason. Like I always was like, I'm supposed to be doing this so nothing bad can happen. I'm supposed to be doing this. Like God is protecting me. People are, I'm, I'm good. Like go to the village. They have, it was just in my mind. Everything was just like, go. It was just simple. Like you need this. You do this. Catch a flight. Put in your suitcase. Come back to America. Take your picture. Show everyone is real. And that's how you're going to build your brand. That's how I was thinking. And I, and I wasn't even aware of like the rules. I didn't know the rules. I, like I said, I wish you would rub off on me. I remember I had a close friend from Rice when I was working on an entrepreneurial endeavor. And she, we were having lunch and I was talking through some problems. She just like got frustrated with me. And she goes, Clay, you let problem solving get in the way of decision making. Make a decision. And I was just like, it was kind of a light bulb moment for me. Because I am like wildly analytical. But if you wait till you've solved every problem, you're never going to make a decision. You've got to make it when you've got 50%, 70%, and then you've got to go with God as you were talking about this. To speak on that real quick, watching Christina like grow this brand has been, I've had the, the best front row seat to this entire thing. I, and I never once was like, are you sure? Because I know her. She's going to go do it. and It's going to be great. But we got to the point where we, you mentioned names that didn't work out earlier. Before 54 Thrones, you remember this name? It was Rich and Naked. Do you remember that? So she had. These- I might still use that. So. <laughs> we'll trademark that. I'll be your. Yeah. Uh, I'll be your model for that. Rich okay. and Naked. Done. It sure was. <laughs> You're right. Rich and Naked. Wow, yeah. that was. And I had little lip balms. Lip then. balms. You had. I found one of the first edition shea butters <laughs> that were in these tubes and who was your first photographer <laughs> i'll tell you what you said something that may, reminded me of such a beautiful moment and I, i'll post two pictures when we release this one will be that moment at the sephora launch party because it's one of my favorite photos ever the other will be when you guys were watching shark tank and this is just me since crystal's my girl I'm watching her and you guys were live on Instagram and you're in the <laughs> forefront, Christina. I don't know if you even know if you know this. We need to find the video and screenshot it. And your sister, Crystal, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. Your sister, Crystal, is just staring at you. She was just staring at you and she had this smile. She was so proud of you, Christina. I mean, just proud of you. And I was sitting there watching you guys and I just was like, I was watching Crystal the whole time because she's just like, I was just like, ah, what a beautiful moment of this big sister. And she can't take her eyes off of you. She's so proud of you. And it was just a, a wonderful moment. 
Yeah, wonderful she has mom. Been a really great supporter because she is like, man, we have stories of the things that she would help me with. Like when you look back, it's like, wow, we was really doing that. Yeah, you, she would have to send me products. I had a little DSLR camera. Yeah, and she would take pictures, and I would put them on our site. And when I like when I first started. I needed labels. And when you start in a brand, especially a product brand, the minimums are so high for everything. They want you to order like five to 10,000. You're like, I just need a hundred. And there was this label company I found and they were in LA and they were so expensive to ship to Houston. Like it would be more than the cost. And so Crystal would go drive there and pick up my labels and then mail them to me like all the time. Wow, and I was like, no really? problem. Because they, like, they were based in LA. Yeah, they were but it's, it's, it's the story of the entrepreneur. It's problem yeah. solving. Like, we'll figure out a way to get Just it done. It I love it. Well, let me list off a number of your achievements. Writing those letters to Oprah must have worked because you've been on Oprah's favorite things. You've been on the Today Show. You've been offered a Shark Tank investment on Shark Tank. You've had stars like Haley Bieber, Aisha Curry promote your brand. You've done a collaboration with Jif Peanut Butter. You've had a speaking engagement at Columbia Business School, among others. So what I want to know is what was the biggest wow moment for you? And then what was the biggest impact on your brand? And even if it's not on that list. The GIF, that was April Fool's. That wasn't real. That was not real? No, that was April Fool's thing. Got me. April Fool's joke. <laughs> and I feel bad. People do. People are still. Someone think, else emailed yeah. us about that too. And I'm like, oh, shit. Here's, like, what, was- here's what's going to happen. My ego, like when I'm editing this, I'm going like, oh, I'm going to want to cut that out, but I'll leave it in. <laughs> but I think the, like, so I've been building this brand since 2016, but, but no one knew about us until 2020. So four years down the line, right? We had like, four-digit sales in 2016 and 2019 and then 2020 just went crazy the thing that happened so far or the first thing that happened and made me be like okay like this is this is something i remember we were at our house and i and one of our products won an oprah's best face oil award and i looked on my phone and i was scrolling and i saw it and i was just that was like the first award we had ever gotten. It was from Oprah. They didn't even call you. You just found it online. They don't call. They don't call you or nothing. They just post it, and you got to look for it. And so when that happened, I remember in my room, Crystal was there. I just like went crazy. It was just like wow, like you, because it's like it's your baby, and you're making it, and you have these ideas, and you put it together, and you got it in a product, and it's like somehow Oprah's like yeah. So that was the first like aha, like wow moment. And that was in 2020. As far as something that has happened that's made the biggest impact on the brand. Ooh, there's been a couple of couple of things. I think definitely Oprah's favorite things being chosen to be on her list is like an iconic list and an iconic experience. So that for sure, that was in 2020, but Shark Tank. Being on Shark Tank, I always felt like I could be on Shark Tank. I would watch the shows and I'd be like, I, I'm going to do this. And when that happened and like being there in the studio, and like walking on the stage, like that moment, ah, that was just an incredible, like one of my life's like best moments, I would say. And then also launching in Sephora. Like I always wanted the brand to be in Sephora. 
And now being in Sephora is just like those three things. Everything has been I'm, everything yeah. has been like really changing for the brand, even launching in Nordstrom. So there was just like a culmination of so many good snowball moments that have been happening lately. Well, we're talking about all this moments of persistence from having the idea to figuring it out in Africa on your feet to doing all these things. What I want to know is how you get through the low moments. How do you get through the doubt? That was four years when you were posting and getting two likes or you weren't selling. Where do you go to find confidence? What do you do in those moments of doubts when the easier thing to do would be shut it down and do something else? I think I may have a weird approach because even when we were getting like two or three likes, I didn't get down. I was always just kind of like not enough people see our page. They just don't know about us. But when they know about us, they're going to love it. So I was just always like telling myself that it may not be like the typical approach, but I've just always been a person that's lived in my head. And I've always just been like, that people are going to like this. Like, I don't know. I don't know how I how I did it. I just kept posting. I just always felt like something's going to happen. It's, it's going to catch on. And I was gracious enough with myself to know that it could take time. Like I was fully prepared that this might take years. And I found that out really quickly when I launched. Because when I first launched, I was like, oh, like this is, I'm going to retire. Like I was, when I launched the brand on, like, on our, our website the first day, I was just like, oh yeah. And it was like my friends and my, you know, family had bought. And then, and I quickly, three weeks later, I launched another business because I was like, I'm not going to be able to survive on this. And so I never like lost the passion or the, the idea that it could work, but I had to also be um, pragmatic. Like I have bills. Let me try. I was always like pivot. It can still, you can still focus on it, but you need to pay your bills. So start something else. And then I started two other business. I just kept going. So I like accidentally turned into like a serial entrepreneur, but like I never lost hope because I was, I knew that the trend was coming and I had looked at how the world was moving and I knew that Africa and African beauty was going to catch on eventually. I just kept going. I want to ask you both about what you do with this notoriety. So I had a rule that anytime I was in LA, I'm having dinner and drinks with Crystal and whoever she brings dinners on me. And sometimes she would bring you. And I'll never forget, we sat down for dinner years ago, and you made a comment, Christina, that I thought a lot about. Crystal and I were sharing insecurities growing up. We were talking about being unsure of ourselves growing up. And you chimed in, Christina, and you said, oh, come on, guys, you know you were the popular kids. You know you were the cool kids. And I think that was true. However, it's hard sometimes in the moment when you're dealing with your own self-doubt to realize that and to realize the good you could do with that. And I think you've always been a cool kid also, but you're certainly now sitting at the popular table. And so my question is, what responsibility comes with this notoriety? What responsibility comes with this cool kid status? What do you do with it? What do you think is in, important for you to know, realize, and, and do with it? Yeah, and it's weird when, when it's you looking at yourself, but I don't feel the notoriety. I still am like Christina who like wakes up and goes to the office and work. You know what I mean? I don't feel the notoriety as much as it might seem because I'm still, my head is so deep in like building a brand. Like, and it's important that like when you do accomplish certain things or you do start getting awards, you know, for what you're doing, 
you really have one has to really be careful because you don't want hubris to sneak in and start whispering in your ear that you've made it because I haven't made it. There's so much that I don't know. There's so much more that I want to do. And so I feel like you can be confident, but you can also be, I don't want to use the word humble because you should be able to cheer for yourself and, and feel good when you, and post about your wins. But it's a level of, I want to be even killed to a point where I can not get like wrapped up in what people are saying about you, even if it is positive. So it's like, we celebrate so many things. Like our family just, we've always just been like happy, joyful people. And so I make sure that I don't take the lows too hard. I don't take the highs too hard. But I always have that in my mind, like just, you know, take it with stride. Like don't be so, I've made it. I haven't made it. And I know that. And I, you know what I mean? It's like life and and success to me is like, I'm always going to be learning. There's no like, it's not a destination. I'm always going to want to be learning. I'm always going to want to do better and challenge myself. I might be sitting at the cool table, but like, I'm definitely aware of like the things that I still need to learn and the the places that I still want to go. And so just like being around the people who encourage that and not around people that are just agreeing. I love being challenged. I love having staff that challenge me and challenge what I say and that are assertive and can and confident and can bring up their opinions. I don't want people around that are just like, yeah, that's great. And just agreeing with everything I say. I love people to have opinions. Whenever I ask them something and they say something, I don't agree with them. They're like, what do y'all say? Y'all told me this the other day. It's like, I'll ask y'all's opinion. Oh, (laughs) and we tell her she's, and then it's not what she wants to hear. And she gets, she's like, well, why not this? And we're like, Christina, it's our opinion. Cause I want, (laughs) I want them to fight for it. Like I want them to fight. I used to call that professional dissent at my company. I said, I want professional dissent. I said professional because I don't want to be disrespectful, but like, I want people to be able to be curious and question and, and wait a second, that doesn't make sense. But I want to get Crystal's thoughts on this comment because the reason I ruminated on that thought for a long time is because I, like you, was maybe caught up in my own self-doubt. And I think I thought back, especially like with my brothers and others, that even if my advantages growing up or now are subtle, I want to be aware of them and be confident enough to use those advantages for good, to make other people feel welcome. Not that I didn't do a lot of great things growing up, but I wish I would have saw myself enough, not to say, not hubris, but to go, oh, wait a second, I, I do have some advantages. Be mindful of those and use those. So I'm, I'm clearly taking a comment you made about high school and like using it to make a larger point. But on a societal scale, I just hope those with notoriety or success or advantages would have the self-awareness to go above and beyond to use them for good. Not to not to think you're always going to be at the cool kid table, but use them to do good things. What about you, Crystal? And go I'll ahead, say go one, ahead. one other thing, though. And I do because I remember when I was starting the brand and I would email other like founders, like I had questions and no one would respond. And it's not, you know, a stab at them. They're busy. I get it. But even today, like when I get those same DMs or, or LinkedIn's, I try my best to respond. Because I remember being in that seat and not knowing anything. And even, and sometimes like, excuse me, some people will message me and I'll be like, what's your number? I'm just going to call you. 
because like I know exactly where you are. I know where your mind is. I know where you're, what you're fighting with. And I remember being in those same positions when no, and I, and no one helped me and, and that's fine. And I understand people have priorities and lies, but like, sometimes I'm just like, let me respond because I know where you are. And, and I'm only here because later on throughout, you know, my career and, you know, building the brand, some of those same brands that I admired were now like in my inbox, like, wow, Christina, you doing it? And I'm like, what <laughs> you know what I mean like yeah. we're like y'all know about 54 thrones and so I try to like do that and even like with my staff some of them may have I you know aspirations of being like entrepreneurs and I'm like do this you know or question this or like you being a part of this project you can add this to your repertoire like like use every position that you have to get where you want to go and I'm always confused when people have are entrepreneurs and they have brands and people are working for them and they quit and they want to start their own thing. Why are you surprised? That's why they're working for you. And that's how life should go. Like you want these experiences to improve yourself. And, and me, I'm just a vehicle. I'm just a vessel. 54 Thrones, like I work for 54 Thrones. Like this isn't me. Like I feel like I'm here. This is my calling. This is my purpose. But 54 Thrones is going to be around after I'm gone. And that's fine. Like I'm not doing this for Christina. Like I'm doing this as a movement, as a vessel, because this is what I was called to do. And anyone that's on that bus with me, I want them to do better and improve so they can move on and create things. You know you what work, I mean? You work with me, not for me. That, I love that yeah. idea as a I'm leader. I'm like, I work at 54 Thrones yeah, too. I've like. <laughs> never been comfortable with the idea of boss uh, you know, or the idea of Miss Christina or Mr. Clay. No, 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 no. We, we work together. I'll tell you two stories that are analogous to this and made me think about how I use whatever strengths I have. I had a cousin that moved to Pflugerville when I was a senior and she was a freshman. I don't think very many people know this. She told me this recently and she's now, you know, we're in our thirties. A month into school, no one's being her friend. No one's talking to her, but they were checking role. And she said like two of the kids in class leaned over to her and they go, are you Clay Reichenbach's cousin? And I didn't think of myself that way, but when she told me that, and I thought a lot about it, you know, comments like that, I'm just going, not that I wasn't a good person, but maybe I could have been aware of that and used that. So I try to be aware of that in life to use whatever advantages I have to try to make other people feel welcome. How can I do better? Whatever small advantages I have, how can I use those for good? But go ahead, Crystal, I had thoughts. No, that's you get that a lot. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I get that. I, I do get that now. I feel like I probably have gotten that for a few years now. But yeah, people are now like, like, wow, well, I didn't think you would write me back, or like, wow, you, you know, you called me here, and you never look at yourself like that. You're like, I'm just. And you shouldn't look at yourself like yeah. that. Like I said, my wish is to be self aware enough to go, and this can go back to the race discussion we had earlier. Be self aware enough to know. Oh, I may not feel like it, but I have a little advantage there. How can I use that for good? How can I use that to make someone else feel welcome? It's kind of where I was going with that. Um, I mean, going back to like the popular kids and like you, I don't think I ever looked at myself as being a popular kid. I thought that, you know, I was an athlete. I you played. were popular. I mean, I was pop and I'm not saying it from a place like it was hard being your sister because I was yeah. popular too. Yeah. I just I don't know. I think that high school was high school, but I think a lot of how I am today with people 
was cultivated in, in Pflugerville. So like you, like, yes, I was popular, but for me, it was more about being kind and being inclusive and welcoming because no matter how I could be popular in Pflugerville, but I was not popular at Texas State when I was first there. So I wanted to make sure that anyone I met, they felt comfortable with me and they felt welcome and they felt like they belonged. Like that to me was always more important than being popular. And you always did a good job. of You've always done a good job of that. When you're around like new people, you're like, you know, interested. Yeah. Thanks. Sis. Yeah, it's important. Like nobody wants to be in a space not feeling welcome. That's the worst feeling. I think I go out of my way and at times it may be a little overboard to make sure others are comfortable because that's just the worst feeling. So, yeah. How can we extrapolate that to a larger society is kind of my goal. That's one of the reasons I want to do this. I want to impact people. I want to influence people. And how, how can I do that in a small way? Well, this is the last question for each of you. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? This is a piece of advice that I have now grown to really take to heart. My mom would always say, and she's going to love that I say this, <laughs> but she would always say, never give less than your best. So part of me was like, hmm, like that's that can be a, a big, a tall order. But if there's sometimes I'm feeling low and I give the best that I can from that space, I know that it's still enough. No matter like where you are, as long as you can give what your best looks like, things are going to work out. I think it's great you mentioned your mom because literally before we started this, I was thinking, you know, what's my goal for this? I'm like, I want our parents to be proud of this conversation. I want our parents to be proud. That's my that's my definition of success for this one. Go ahead, Christina. What's your mine advice? would be my dad would all, like I was a kid and I was always like really obsessed with my future, like stressed, like worried. Yeah, <laughs> and I was like ten years old with like a resume. Like I, I was always like updating my resume. I, as soon as I found out what a resume was, I was like, I need one. And when I got finally got to the point where I was older and I was applying to jobs with my resume, I would always send my resume to my dad. And there would be certain jobs and I'd be like, man, they want three years of experience. I'm just going to, my dad would always say, don't screen yourself out. He was like, apply. He'd always be like, like, let them tell you no. Like, don't tell yourself no. And so I, I take that with everything that I do. Like, you know, oh, it may not work. Do it anyways. Like, try it. You know what I mean? Like, apply. Like apply to this, apply to that grant, apply to this, like put your product out there. Like don't screen yourself out because if you don't even try, you have a hundred percent chance of no. That's amazing. One of the NFLers I had on the podcast said something similar. And I, th- I really love this phrase. And he said, make space for greatness. Don't count yourself out. If there's a chance, make that space. It's called a leap of faith, not a step of faith, but go for it. And that reminds me of my favorite quote. If you want to achieve greatness, stop asking for permission. Love it. That's a good place to end it, girls. I love you girls. You know that. Thank you so love much you for too, doing this. This is awesome. Thank you. This is great. This is, this is great. <laughs>